Shalom and thank you for clicking to listen to one of our audio messages. At Tikvat David, we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. We hope that this message will encourage, inform, and inspire you to follow Yeshua and to walk in the pathways of Torah. Enjoy. Back in 2009, Simon Sinek wrote a very influential uh, book called Start With Why. Uh, I have it here on my bookshelf, and I I really enjoyed reading that book. Maybe you read it as well. Well, you may also uh, know the name Simon Sinek because he also gave a a TED Talk on the same topic, Start With Why. And that TED Talk is actually one of the most watched TED Talks of all time. So in the book and in his presentation, Simon Sinek shares his big idea in the form of what he calls the golden circle. So his model has three concentric circles, and the center the center circle is why, and then you go out to the next circle, which is how, and then the outer circle is what. So his main point in the book uh, and in the talk is that you should start any major enterprise, idea, or initiative by making sure that you clearly articulate your why first and foremost. Well, here in Philippians, I think Paul does a great job of articulating his why, uh, which then leads to his how and his what. And I would say that Paul's why can be found uh, in the verses that we looked at last week at the beginning part of Philippians chapter 2, which of course you can go back and listen uh, to the recording from last week. Uh, I would say what Paul wants the Philippians to do is clear, the what, and that is he he wants them to maintain allegiance to Yeshua in the face of suffering as opposed to abandoning the ship and returning to life as normal pagans in Philippi. But of course, a fair question is, why? Why should they do that? Why should they side with Paul as opposed to the other, I would say, more expedient and probably at least temporarily beneficial options? So, you know, I know some of you have been listening to this series from the very beginning, and I'm curious as as to what you're thinking right now. You know, based on what we've observed in this letter so far, what you've read in it previously, I'm curious how you would answer that question in your mind. In other words, what is Paul's why here that undergirds his what? We always want to ask that question. Why did he pick up the pen? And, and, And what's his why in this letter that is really substantiating Uh, the course of action that he's recommending. Well, I think our text, again, last week uh, articulated his why in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, uh, which is just a beautiful chunk of uh, Pauline uh, uh, expression there in this letter. Uh, But those verses give his ultimate because. He says that the Philippians should continue to suffer because their master suffered on their behalf. The master emptied himself. The master took on the form of a servant. The master was willing to die a horrible death. As a result of that, the master was exalted and given the name above every name. And every knee will bow to the master, to the glory of God the Father, Paul says. So if a Philippian were to to succinctly ask the question, Paul, why should we continue to suffer for Yeshua as opposed to finding relief from the other options that are on the table for us from these people that you think of as our enemies or opponents. Well, 
I think based on the content of this letter, Paul might answer that question by saying, because Yeshua is God's appointed king, and he also had to endure temporary suffering for our sake. But at the end of the day, allegiance to him will surely pay off. That's why. So Paul has a really big, uh, I would say robust why in this letter. Well, as we move into the rest of chapter two, Paul moves outside of that center circle, if you will, and beyond the why and into the how and the what. So let's look at verses 12 through 13. Again, we're going to cover um, the rest of chapter two today. So we'll be covering uh, chapter two, verses 12 through 30. And But let's just kind of take these a few verses at a time. So Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So for obvious reasons, uh, this text frequently gets brought into theological discussions about the uh, the relationship between grace and works when it comes to personal salvation. And and as we've emphasized throughout this series, and um, we've, we've actually been doing this series uh, in an interactive format as well on Zoom during this uh, COVID-19 season. I'm actually recording this uh, this at a later time, of course. But we, you know, several people that have been involved in the interactive study have, have emphasized, I think, uh, beautifully and strongly that Paul is not writing a theological treatise here uh, in this letter, or really in any of his letters. Uh, rather, he, he's issuing practical apostolic instructions into a particular community. These are highly situational circumstances. These are letters. Yes, they contain what we would later call as theology, but that's not necessarily what he is seeking to accomplish, though, of course, yes, he is communicating truth that we piece together uh, into theological conclusions. So Paul's point here, though, in in these verses is that in light of the suffering and kingship of Yeshua, He's saying the Philippians should press on and work out their salvation with fear and trembling. I think this idea likely parallels what Paul said about Yeshua in, two, in uh, chapter 2, verse 8, so a few verses earlier. There, Paul said that Yeshua humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So I think here in verse 12, working out your salvation with fear and trembling is parallel to Yeshua's humble obedience in verse 8. You can kind of see the parallel ideas there. You know, Just as Yeshua exercised humble obedience, they should work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, Obviously, obedience and salvation are, are, are not the same things, but he's talking about walk this out. Walk this out in obedience uh, with fear and trembling, with humility, just like the master. Okay, the NET Bible, I think, uh, it's, it's interesting. They translate this same phrase in verse 12. Uh, rather than with fear and trembling, they they render uh, the Greek there with awe and reverence. So just as Yeshua exercised humble obedience to the Father, Paul's saying so should the Philippians work out their salvation with awe and fear and reverence. And again, as we go along and you know learn more about the Philippian uh, opponents, uh, as as you know more details emerge in this letter, I think we'll see 
that reverence and humility are traits that actually stand in stark contrast to the way that uh, the, the, the pagan opponents operated in this letter, uh, whom, we, whom I think we're going to see were known for their arrogance and haughtiness. So I think Paul has, you know, again, in, in view here, the opponents and their arrogance and their pride and their haughtiness, what they're known for, these dogs that he's going to refer to in chapter three, and he's going to describe them, whose God is their belly. Yeah, Philippians, they, the recipients of this letter who are, who are agios, they're holy ones. They shouldn't be that way. They should be like the master, and that's humble. Now, before we move on, uh, we see in verse 13 that Paul encourages them by noting that God is at work within them. And I would say that this is probably uh, an implied reference to the, to the ruach, to the spirit of God, the, the pneuma of God, which empowers obedience and faithfulness for those who have given allegiance to God and to his Messiah. Well, Paul goes on in verses 14 and 15. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So verse 14 is, is, pretty, is a pretty straightforward call for unity, uh, and we've already noted that various clues in this letter and in this chapter, even in this chapter, the first couple verses of this chapter, verses 1 and 2, indicate that uh, you know, be, unity was some kind of an issue for the Philippian ecclesia, for this this community of of uh, of Christ followers. Um, but Paul does something pretty cool in these verses, and and it's pretty easy to miss. Uh, Paul is actually framing his point here to the Philippians by creatively using a text from the Torah, specifically Deuteronomy thirty two. Now, Deuteronomy thirty two is a is a very famous chapter. Uh, of the Torah. It's actually where we have recorded the Song of Moses, uh, in which Moses, uh, it's this beautiful poetic and prophetic uh, preview of the uh, unfaithfulness of Israel. So I don't know that it's maybe to say it's beautiful. It's just, it's a very powerful, very poetic, and very prophetic picture of what's going to unfold in Israel's history there in Deuteronomy 32. And of course, in that Song of Moses, Israel is characterized at various points, um, not just there, but in other places as in the Torah by grumbling and disputing. So in his letter to the Philippians, I think Paul is taking an example from Israel's history and charging the Philippians to not be guilty of the same crime of grumbling and disputing and thus experience the same punishment. Uh, and so Paul's saying, don't do that. And I think this is part of a broader enterprise um, here that Paul is actually endeavoring throughout his letters. Remember, Paul's Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire, they have become, as we we have emphasized throughout this series, at the beginning of this letter, he calls them agios. They are holy ones in Greek. They have been adopted into Abraham's family. Through the Spirit of God dwelling in them, they are now substantially changed and they have become new creations and they have become descendants of Abraham because of the seed of Messiah in them. So consequently, the stories of Israel are now part of their adopted family heritage as well. 
No longer do the Philippians uh, have a, a familial connection to the local gods, and no longer are the associated pagan myths and stories to be that which defines their family and historical narrative. So what Paul's doing here throughout his letters is he's pulling Torah stories and examples uh, and incorporating them throughout his letters to make his points and also to connect these uh, these Gentiles, these members of the nations to their new family heritage and their new family God, the one true God, the God of Israel. So he says, don't grumble and murmur like the Israelites of old. And then here in verse 15, Paul references Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, in Moses' song, that uh, the pasuk there in the Torah, the verse, it says, they... Now I'm quoting Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. They, speaking of disobedient Israel, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So when I when I read that, you can hear the parallels to Philippians 2.15 when Paul says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as light in the world. I really encourage you to um, to open your Bibles or your phones, whatever, and, and compare Deuteronomy 32 verse 5 to Philippians 2.15. You'll see just the creative, beautiful way that Paul is, is utilizing that verse to make his point in a bit of a Midrashic uh, fashion again, midrash. He's 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 quoting a verse, not necessarily in its with its literal meaning, but to make a larger uh, a larger point based on truth that's revealed in that verse. So, you know, he's he's being midrashic with his quotation of this verse from Moses's song. Um, you know, again, the verse here doesn't directly ap- apply, but Paul he's drawing parallels and points from it to make his point. So Israel was was blemished at times. Uh, due to corruption, and Paul doesn't want that to be the case with the Philippians. He wants them to be, as he says, blameless and innocent. And then in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, Moses is speaking of that Jewish generation as crooked and twisted. But Paul makes a different uh, move here with the text and says that the Philippians are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul uses the text in Deuteronomy 32, again, midrashically, to call the Philippians to be blameless, not blemished, in the midst of the crooked and twisted society that they live in. And at the end of verse 15, Paul says that they should shine as lights in the world. Again, Paul is possibly referring to a Tanakh text uh, text in making this point. Um, Daniel chapter 12, verse 3 says, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Craig Keener notes that Jewish tradition often compares the righteous with lights in a dark world. And that's what Paul wants the Philippians to be. He wants them to be lights and blameless, similar to the righteous ones within Israel. And Paul wants the Philippians to shine in the midst of a crooked and twisted society. Uh, the NET uh, translation renders genea, the Greek word there, as society as opposed to uh, generation in verse 15, which I think is good. I think it's more uh, probably contextual that he's saying, you, know, you are in the midst 
of a crooked and twisted pagan society. Um, and generation works as a translation there too, but I think society is probably more contextually appropriate. And he's saying, but shine as lights. And of course, you know, Paul's exhortation here is timeless. You know, presently we, we find ourselves and uh, continue to find ourselves in a very difficult season with the coronavirus and the spread and the restrictions. And so I think a, a good question for us to think about as disciples of Yeshua is, you know, what does it look like for us to shine as lights in the world where we find ourselves today? Now, you may be listening to this after the restrictions have been lifted. Uh, I hope that that's soon uh, and speedily. But no matter what time it is, that's a key question. You know, it's not easy to shine as a light in the world, uh, whether we're cooped up under quarantines and sheltering at home or even if we're not. So that's an important thing. What does it look like under our circumstances to shine as lights in the world. Uh, I'm going to use my, uh, just thinking about where we find ourselves just at this moment as, as I'm recording this, I'm going to use my my sweet wife as, as an example, which I don't normally do, but um, I just have a great example here. I, I just, I love the way that she is just um, taking the lead right now and in, in extending generosity to a restaurant across the street from us by uh, buying something from them um, every week because of course restaurants are really struggling right now with the COVID-19 and the businesses being closed and restaurants not being able to have you know people in the actual restaurants and so uh, this restaurant across the street is just selling fresh produce farmers market boxes and and uh, I'll say also they they also make local craft beer, and I'm a big fan of local craft beer, of course, in moderation. But uh, you know they're, uh, they're so we you know we try to help them out as much as we can, and and she's really taking the lead on that. And they they of course they know I'm. Um, we know the owner, and they know I'm the rabbi of a messianic synagogue. So I hope that, uh, so I, I'm I would say I'm actually I'm thankful that they can see us extending some light, and helping how we can. Um, where we are today. And of course, many others are doing that uh, as well. So whatever time and place we find ourselves in, whether it's uh, first century Philippi or 2020 in Roswell, Georgia, we should always seek to carry out Paul's why by doing the what of shining like lights in the world. Well, Paul continues with some beautiful Torah imagery in verses 16 through 18. There he tells the Philippians to continue uh, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So that's uh, some some strong imagery there that Paul is is incorporating, and I'm wondering where your mind is going. Uh, you know what what imagery from the Tanakh is Paul incorporating here uh, to make his point? Well, I think he is clearly used, utilizing temple imagery uh, in in this section of of the letter. He mentions being poured out as a drink offering. Now, keep in mind that this language. Uh, this temple-type sacrificial language is not a uniquely Jewish concept. Craig Keener, again, notes that ancient religions regularly poured out libations to the gods, which was usually wine. So the Philippians 
you know, should have been able to readily connect with this image, uh, not even from what they have learned about Judaism and the Torah, but what they know just from the wider pagan religious culture. Now, Paul's language here is quite poetic, uh, so he may have had some layered meanings here, but I think at least in part he's communicating uh, that he's hoping that what he has already poured out to the Philippians was was not in vain uh, with reference to verse 16. He's, he's hoping that his future uh, pouring out uh, will effectively and com- powerfully combine along with their sense of, of sacrifice. And that combination is a thought and path that makes uh, Paul glad. He's in verse uh, 17. Uh, in verse 17, we see him saying, you know, if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Therefore, you should, likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice uh, with me. You know, remember a few verses earlier in last week's uh, text that we look at, looked at in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we saw that Yeshua emptied himself. And now Paul speaks of being poured out as a drink offering, which again may may be an allusion to the possibility of his death. And Paul speaks of the sacrificial offering of your faith. So again, we see in this letter that Paul repeatedly, he's drawing a line between Yeshua's suffering and his own suffering and the suffering of the Philippians. And Paul's hoping that the Philippians will be inspired and strengthened by that sense of alignment and shared purpose with Paul and Yeshua. Okay. So uh, I want to finish up this chapter and look at what Paul um, has to say about Timothy and Epaphroditus. So let's take a fairly quick look at both of these before we wrap this up. So in verses 19 through 24, uh, Paul communicates his desire to send Timothy to the Philippians. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So we learned uh, in the first verse of the letter that, that Timothy is with Paul. Uh, in prison. And here at the end of chapter two, we observe that Paul is making tentative plans to send Timothy to them soon to help with the problems in Philippi. This appears to be, uh, let's just call it plan A for Paul, but it all appears to be contingent upon Paul's prison circumstances, which we know very little about. Um, But we do see there in verse 19, he says, I hope to send Timothy, not I am sending Timothy. But what is clear in these verses is that Paul Paul very clearly thinks the world of Timothy. Uh, he says in verse 20 that he has no one like him. So I guess we could say if Paul is Batman, Timothy is Robin. I mean, he they are that close. And, and it's clear why Paul trusts Timothy so much. Verse 20 says that Timothy will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And then in verse 21, Paul presumably, presumably Uh, contrast Timothy with the Philippian opponents and that he says they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So I think we can put this together that, that Paul's trust in Timothy was based on Timothy's concern for the welfare of the Philippians, his sincere concern, and his interest being aligned with that of Yeshua, the Messiah. You know, 
as I think about this, there's there's nothing that blesses a leader more than people around him or her who have positive motives and an agenda to carry forth their shared mission. To put this differently, I think Paul loved and trusted uh, Timothy uh, so much and and clearly looks at Timothy as his right-hand man because Timothy embraced the same why as Paul. Timothy didn't have his own his own agenda. His agenda was the same as Paul's, which was to advance the cause of Yeshua. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And he's he's uh, you know uh, aligning Timothy with the interests of Yeshua. You know, just as I think about this personally, you know, I have roles in my life, various roles, like I know many of you do, uh, and and some of my roles involve me being a leader, and some of them involve me being a follower. You know, as a leader, though, I'm always grateful for people around me uh, who have good motives and and a common agenda. Um, it's especially if they, you know, if they if they, you know, there were in something together. Uh, and the opposite is true also. I'm always wary of people who I sense have questionable motives or a competing agenda. And as a follower, you know, when I'm in when I have a follower hat on, I know that the best thing I can do is support those who are in leadership over me and to carry out the agenda that has been established by the leadership. If I can't support that agenda, then I don't belong on that team. You know, because the worst thing you can do is to have an alternate or alternative agenda. Uh, that's not being a good follower. And it, you know, it's, it's as a leader, you really, um, it, it, that's really something difficult to deal with. So Timothy's a great example for all of us of a great follower. And I think that normally the, normally the case, that's what makes someone a great leader also. Somebody who is, knows how to follow oftentimes is, is, a, is a good leader as well. But again, uh, Paul's plan to send Timothy is tentative. But in verses 25 through 30, Paul indicates that he's going to send Epaphroditus either way. He says, I've thought it necessary, starting verse 25, I thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So we don't know much about Epaphroditus, but Philippians 4.18 does tell, actually, so later towards the end of the letter, it does tell us that he had been the Philippians' original messenger to Paul. Chapter four, verse eighteen says, uh, "I am well supplied." Paul says, "I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent." So it's likely that uh, Epaphroditus also carried this letter written by Paul back to the Philippians. Now, again, Epaphroditus is another example marshaled by Paul as one willing to suffer for the cause of Yeshua. You know, any kind of travel. Uh, in the ancient world was dangerous. That's fairly well known. And as a traveling messenger, Epaphroditus was certainly exposed to life-threatening conditions. And of course, Paul tells us that this is exactly what he endured. 
Verse 30 says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In other words, Epaphroditus almost died in his initial trip from the Philippians to Paul, wherever Paul is. So, you know, Paul's why has been made very clear. Yeshua is God's anointed king. In Yeshua, God makes the Philippians holy ones. Yeshua suffered horribly, but that suffering was temporary, and theirs will be also. So all of that is part of Paul's why. And the how is that the Philippians should live as lights in this world. So I hope that as we you know, think about this, um, I hope that Hashem will help us to embrace Paul's why, and may our how be the same as well. May God help us, whatever that looks like today in our world, under our circumstances and even restrictions, may we shine as light in this world. Shalom. Thank you for listening to this audio message from Tikvat David Messianic Synagogue. We would love to get to meet you in person sometime at the synagogue, so come join us for Shabbat or one of the holidays. Also, you can join us in building Messianic Judaism, whether you live in the Atlanta area or far away, by financially contributing to our synagogue. You can learn about the options for giving under the Donate tab at tikvatdavid.org. At Tikvat David, we would love to have you stand with us as we are building a Yeshua-centered Judaism for Israel and the nations. Shalom.